Today, we're going to talk about all things gear rental on Behind the Shot. Hi, as always, welcome to Behind the Shot. I'm Steve Brazel, your host, and I've got a very special show lined up for you today. In fact, it's kind of an unusual show. It's not going to be the normal talk about a photograph show, although... We do have photographs. We'll talk about those as well. Before we do, I do want to remind you, if you are watching this on YouTube, please do make sure to go down, click the subscribe button, and click the bell. You know the routine. YouTube doesn't show you things unless you do two things. Not sure why that exactly happens. If you're watching the video of this in a podcast app or listening to the audio-only version of this in a podcast app, please do wherever you are getting it. Please subscribe. It just makes it easier. It helps with discoverability and a bunch of stuff like that. Also, I do want to remind you one more time, I've got classes now at PrincetonPhotoWorkshop.com. You can get all the details on that by going to PrincetonPhotoWorkshop.com. I've got one coming up in April of 2021 that is on the challenges of low-light action photography. So... Hopefully that's something that you're interested in and I'll see you there. Uh, as far as this show is concerned and every show that we do, all the links are always available to you at the website, which is behindtheshot.tv. Just find the episode that you're interested in. Click that one. You'll see all the links about all my guests, including today's guests, at the bottom of every post. And a couple of quick notes about this show before I bring my guests in. And I don't normally do this, but I've got to do this. And I probably should have warned them before I do this that I'm going to. This is not a sponsored show. I've got a particular guest on today that is a specific company. It's a company I highly respect. But before somebody leaves a YouTube comment, I just want to make sure you understand, this is not a sponsored show. I, I have no compensation from my guests. Whenever I do a show, nobody gets to approve the content or go through my questions. All the questions and opinions and everything uh, are my own. I've got these guys on because of two reasons. One, I love the way these two guys think about the photography industry as a whole. And two, one of them writes some amazing blog posts. So I want to welcome Drew and Roger from LensRentals.com. How are you guys? Good. Doing great. Well, as I say, I love the blog posts, and mostly those are Roger. And just to, so everybody understands, you'll see if you're watching the video, you'll see lower thirds pop up below them as we go through. But Drew is on camera left, and Roger is on camera right, and that'll make it easy for you to uh, to get through. But Roger, how do you pronounce your last name? Is it Sicola? Say again? Sakala. Okay. So it's Roger Sakala and then co-owner Drew Sakala of LensRentals.com. And I want to go through you guys a little bit and kind of give your background before we get into this. Because the goal today is wherever you are in the world, I think personally people misunderstand A, the gear rental industry, what's available for rental, how the process works how to maximize the return on your rental and get the most out of it, what to expect and how it's changed over the years from when you used to go to your little Ritz camera store and, and, and rent gear, which is you know, night and day you know, compared to what we have nowadays. So Roger, let's start with you because this one surprised me. 30 years as an anesthesiologist? Yeah, 25. Explain how that leads to this. <laughs> it was an accident. I uh, was a photographer. That was my hobby. And uh, if you know anything about physicians, anything we do, we do to excess. So I ended up with a lot of gear. Was going on a cruise to Alaska and decided it was absolutely necessary that I have a 500 F4 for this trip. It was not. I just thought it was. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll rent it for the trip. I, I live in Memphis. And I discovered that's not an option. 
if I lived in LA or New York or Chicago, I could have. And that basically involved really at that time, you buy the lens and when you bring it back, they give you most of the money back. Most of the money back. Yeah. Most of the money back. Yeah. And if uh, for me in Memphis, I could get one place to ship it to me. The rental started when they shipped it by mule train and then ended when I, they got, I'd have to rent it for like 30 days for this eight day trip. So I bought one. And then I came home having not used it very much, had massive buyer's remorse and thought, well, you know, if I wanted to rent it, maybe somebody else did. So I bought this $50 webpage pre-made, didn't want it to look lonely. So I put all my gear on the webpage and started renting it. And, um, Literally, like 10 days later, I had to call a friend and say, can I borrow a camera lens? I'm supposed to take pictures of this girl uh, and her horse this weekend. I don't have any equipment. Because like, you'd rented your own gear? I rented everything I owned, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, thought, so well, there's a good reason to buy more equipment, and here you go. And that brings us to today. That's fascinating. So you touched on something about the process, when it started, and then they shipped it by your mule train. That's kind of my experience, which I'll get into in a minute, but that's that's kind of, you nailed the reason I wanted to do this show. You remind me actually of somebody, you remind me of Dr. T, uh, Larry Tiefenbrunn of Platypod. Same type of thing, science medical background, loves photography, ended up creating Platypod and now Platyball, leads to opening a business. In his case, he's still an active pediatrician, but uh, such a weird kind of, kind of entrepreneurial spirit that runs through that medical industry, I think. Uh, well, so let's no talk about, plan. say that again, happened. I'm sorry. This was no one's plan. It just kind of happened. And suddenly here I was. Yeah. But, but it's, but look what it turned into, right? Something that I think really did reinvent the, 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 the wheel in a, in a way, because what you guys do and what the industry as a whole does really is night and day difference from what, when I got into photography, which wasn't that long ago, but still, uh, you know, what it was in those days. Drew, let's talk about you because this is another one that kind of surprised me. You actually studied law at U of M, University of Michigan. I spent three years at WCZY in Detroit, so I know U of M. Graduated in 2010 with a law degree? Yes, and then came, came back here. Um, so, okay, again, I'm going to go down the same road. How does deciding to, to study law turn into coming back to the family business, as it were? Well, when I was a college senior, um, I was an accounting major here in Memphis. Uh, that's right when he started the company. So I came in and kind of worked in the garage for a year. And and then I went off to law school and I never thought I'd come. I assumed the business would be gone, you know, before I came <laughs> back in three years because it was a, a one-year-old business in his garage where his nurses packed the boxes when I left for school. And, uh, you know, I got out of school and it was just like, you know, I could do this for a couple of years or I could go get a real job. And here we are 10 years later. Um, <laughs> you know, it's just kind of surreal for those years I was in school because it kind of went from his garage when I left to about 10 people, real office space, you know, after the three years. Um, and now looking back at that, you know, that was even very, very small compared to now. So, well, uh, and now you've got, correct me if I'm wrong, I try to do research, but I don't always succeed. Three locations, 25 employees now. <laughs> uh, we've got uh oh i'm wrong and about uh about 175 people wow okay and you do you do you do day-to-day -day operations so you're owner with uh somebody else tyler beckman yes uh correct yes. yes okay 
but you uh, handle day-to-day -day operations, mergers, acquisitions, marketing, software, all of that type stuff. I have in the past, yeah. It's really just a, you know, we've really never defined roles here. It just kind of ended up being, uh, Tyler came on around the same time I did. That was really when he asked for help. Um, and he he's also has a financial background, so that's helped. Um, so kind of just things organically ended up, you know, with everybody finding something they were interested in that no one else was kind of doing. Um, but we never sat down as an ownership group and said, like, this is your role. This is your role. It just really all happened organically for us. Um, See, just able to kind of experiment and go where we wanted to. And I kind of like that attitude. You know what that reminds me of is I grew up working in restaurants. And the restaurants I worked in, nobody would ever say, I'm sorry, I'm not your waiter. Let me get your waiter for you, right? It was, you need coffee, no problem. And you'd tell the waiter, hey, Jimmy, I just got coffee for 13 for you. And everybody pitched in and helped each other. And it made for a... I don't want to say more successful uh, enterprise, but it made for a smoother operation where there was you you had that overlap of roles that I think in the long run served the customer better, you know, at least to me. Uh, so that everybody knows, again, I just want to remind you before we start getting into the deep dive of the conversation here, all the links for LensRentals.com for Drew and Roger are up at the website. It's behindtheshot.tv. Just head on up there, find this episode. If you're watching it on YouTube, the links are down there as well. But uh, click the link for the episode, scroll down to the bottom. I wrote a little bit about the company and I wrote a little bit about these two. And clearly I may have to change some numbers based on what I've written at this point, but that's okay. So I wanna talk about I want to talk about the rental industry and, and here's kind of why. And, and what we're gonna discuss again, so that everybody knows, going back to what I said at the beginning, what we're going to discuss will, in many cases, I can't speak for other companies and, and neither can they, but it should, to some extent, apply to the industry as a whole, the way that I'm going to try and approach this conversation. Because, for example, you may be in a country other than the U.S. where LensRentals.com does not service, uh, but you can rent gear there. And I want you to get something out of this. So if you're in Canada, if you're in Poland, if you're in Switzerland, whatever it is, hopefully this will give you a better insight into how you might be able to utilize those third-party resources for gear that are out there for you. But that said, my understanding, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, LensRentals.com is the largest online provider of photo and video equipment uh, for rental in the U.S., correct? As far as we know, no okay. one's claimed to be bigger. <laughs> do you do anything outside the U.S.? No, we did um, very early on to Canada, but uh, it creates kind of some issues for the relative small amount of shipping it is. Um, rent renting things cross-border is problematic um, as far as paperwork and then believing that you're not selling it, you know, um, so. Right, right, right. Just, we've never been in a place where we were looking for extra business um, and wanted to tackle kind of actually understanding how to do that. So, it's so let me ask you this. Let me ask you this then. If somebody were to contact Lens Rentals, they're from Canada, they fill out a contact form, really interested, is there any way you can service me? And your response back is, we don't do Canada. Do you refer them to somebody? I mean, do you have a list of, of companies that do business in other countries? Not really. Um, you know, we're familiar with Canada. So obviously in Canada, we can help people out with one or two companies. Um, and also in Canada, depending on where they're at, since so many people in Canada do live near the border, it is not problematic to say, ship it to a FedEx office in Buffalo and drive across the border and pick it up or Detroit from Windsor or something like that and drive back across the border with it. It's no problem. Um, so 
for a lot of Canadians at least, we're able to help them in some kind of way. Um, and obviously with people from other countries, uh, we still work with them when they're in the United States. So um, we tend to have quite a few foreign customers, um, international customers who work in the States, you know, on one project or two projects or here for vacation and, and we work with them. Um, but we don't get a lot of people asking us for recommendations as far as overseas rental houses. Um, Interesting. I think, I think they just know that we're probably not, you know, someone else in their industry in Europe is probably a better person to ask about what European rental house is better than us because we just don't really interact, unfortunately. That makes sense. And and quick trivia point, since you brought up Windsor, Windsor is the only place in the U.S. you can drive south to go to Canada. Uh, again. <laughs> Three years in Detroit, I got something from it other than just a wasted <laughs> car. I tell people that all the time when I live there. That was my selling point about how yeah. horrible the workers were. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, it's just one of those weird little things. So I want to talk about rental, both video and and photo for that matter, because in the old days, people would go into a camera store, which you can still do. And I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not saying anything that I say here. If if you know you own a small mom pop camera store more power to you and I wish you all the success. However, in the old days, you'd go into these rental departments that had huge deposit requirements. They'd take your credit card for basically put a hold on your credit card for the cost of the entire piece of equipment that you're getting. Totally different than how the system works today. I had a situation where, and this is kind of what made me want to do the show, by the way, So I am uh, a CPS member, Canon Professional Services, and we can get loaner gear. And I'm thinking, well, I'm not going to rent this. I need, I've got three concerts coming up that I need to shoot. And I know that they're soundboard shoots, Alice in Chains and Smashing Pumpkins. And then the other one was, uh, I I think, Corn. But anyway, uh, so I'm thinking I want a 402.8. And I've never shot a 402.8. Hey, this is a good time for the first time ever to try Canon Professional Services. Again, not meaning to insult Canon Professional Services here. What ended up happening was entirely my fault. But I get this lens. It's awesome. I want to own it. It's beautiful. And I've got three shows in a row on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday. That gear came. I had seven days. And after uh, Friday, after the last shoot, I'm sorry, it was Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. After the last shoot, I'm thinking I'll ship it back on Saturday. Well, I go into FedEx. I'm thinking I'm going to ship it to Canon Professional Services in Irvine. I could have driven it there, but no, you have to ship it. I think it was Atlanta or something like that. I go in on Saturday and FedEx looks at me and says, okay, when does it need to be back? I said, it needs to be back by Tuesday. They said, oh, well, there's no way we can get this back by Tuesday unless you do overnight shipping. So I've got a 402.8 lens that I am overnight shipping to the deep south. And it cost me hundreds of dollars for my free loaner. I expected some cost, but that one surprised me. So... When people start looking at rental gear, let's start here. What can be rented? Anything we can put into a box um, that won't be damaged by shipping and that FedEx will take. So there are a few things we have not been able to ship well. Um, There have been some brands of C-stands, for instance, that um, just we can't find a box that the, the feet don't punch a hole through. Um, so, you know, we won't rent that if we, if the box is going to be beat up and not be able to be returned to us. Cause the last thing we want to do is have a product that 
you know, 20, 30% of the time the box fails um, on the outbound shipment. And now the customer has to find a box that's a crazy specific, you know, mm-hmm. 62 inch long by 10 right. by five size. Um, that's just impossible to find. So short of that, we'll rent just about anything at this point. I mean, we were, we were at walkie talkies, we rent projector screens, we rent, you know, basically anything anyone's ever asked us to carry that is a legitimate customer. So, you know, if we've never heard of you and you asked us to carry something off the wall, we probably won't consider it. But, you know, if you rent from us regularly and you're like, this is a production tool I need to have sometimes um, and it will we'll carry it. And more often than not, our customers are right. Yeah. Um, they're not the first person who was looking for that on our site. They're just the first person who was comfortable enough with us to call us and say, I can't find iPads on your site. Do you rent them? And, and then we we're do. like, what do, what do you want an iPad for? And they explain it to us and we buy five. And then, you know, two weeks later, they're all gone. And it's clear there was a market for that. And so that's kind of how the whole product line has went really from the beginning to now. We rent that's sandbags. That's the craziest thing in the world. We rent sandbags. Not with sand in them, I'm assuming. Yes. Yes. With sand in them. Really? <laughs> you don't. <laughs> hold on. Hold on. You don't send an empty sandbag and go, go to Home Depot and buy a bag of sand? No, because a guy on the scene wants his equipment. He wants it ready to go. He doesn't want to go look for sand. He'll pay the shipping for sand. We, I, I'm shocked. I was like, we rent sandbags. I didn't know about this. <laughs> and they're like, oh, we rent tons of sandbags. <laughs> we rent sandbags. Okay. Yeah. So clearly then it's more than, you know, lens rentals, bodies. So you got lights. What It was interesting, Drew, that you mentioned comms like walkie talkies iPads make sense. Like I'm using an iPad in front of me here for my sound devices, mix pre three to run their app so I can see levels. Um, so in a production environment, if I'm doing a video shoot and I've got people mic'd up and I want to, I, I could see if I'm traveling, I have friends who are tour photographers for well-known artists. Artist is a country artist out of Nashville, but the photographer is out of London. Mm-hmm. So flying over with gear can be tough. So he'll fly over and he'll, he'll do exactly that rent gear. So let me, let me go here then for those people that have never, and I've got a question from somebody coming up from Twitter that, that is perfect to this. Well, I'll get to that in a minute for those people that have never rented Roger, you started the business. So let's, let's have you do this one for those people that have never rented or always wondered, I don't know what I would really, why, what am I going to get out of it? What are the benefits of rental, regardless of what they're renting, I guess? And for that matter, are there any downsides? Well, there's downsides to everything, but there's a whole lot of situations where rental is a good idea. You had a good example. You're using a 4028 for a series of concerts. If, if you're not using it often, if you're using something a couple of times a year, buying it is probably a bad idea. Renting it may be much more cost effective. Um, some of those lenses that cost ten or twelve thousand dollars. If you're not going to use it regularly, that's a pretty big investment. Um, we, we've always had the, you kind of talk about somebody coming from London, but if you're doing doing a music video in Jackson, Mississippi, carrying all that equipment means renting a truck and driving it or whatever, or flying to Jackson, go to the FedEx, it's waiting for you. That's a big deal. Right. Uh, in some cases, it's a lot easier for a photographer or videographer to go, here's my bid, and it includes the rental equipment rather than depreciating my own equipment and everything else. It may be financially better to do it that way. So there's lots of reasons. The The historic downside, I think, was that people always thought they got beat up crap 
and that's kind of why we were a little different on the front end. I was a photographer. Uh, my job, when Drew talked about we don't really have any jobs now, I've kind of, I do nothing but quality assurance. It's my passion. So our stuff gets tested. It gets inspected. It gets sold after two years, whether it's in good shape or not. So it's it's not uh, not that. The downside, we've had some people that, that literally have rented something for so long that we've called and said, you, you need to buy this. <laughs> you're, you're just, this is not, okay. you've rented. We had one person we gave a Canon 51.2 lens to because he'd been renting it for like 17 months. He paid for it twice. And we finally just said, keep it. <laughs> this is not right. You, you, so you, you said something that made me think of another scenario that, that is handy. And that is, and in fact, I just had uh, Vanessa Joy on the show. Normally, she's a well-known wedding photographer, Canon Explorer of Light, and she was explaining a story where she went on a plane. I think it was Vanessa's show. I'm going to end up wrong, and somebody will correct me. That's okay. But it was something to the effect of she went on a plane, and they wanted her to check her bag that had mm. the camera gear that she intended to go on with, and it was an international flight. And so if you're worried about your gear, just have it shipped where you need it, you know, if you're going to the Palouse for a workshop with Scott Bourne, okay, go to the Palouse and just go to FedEx and pick up your, your camera gear there. But the question I mentioned earlier that somebody, I, I solicited some questions from, from Twitter and Michael uh, Turndrew, I guess it is. It's at Michael A-T-E-R-N-D-R-U for anybody that wants to go follow Michael. Ask this question. What do you say to someone who's scared of renting a camera lens? Now, I'm not sure what he means by why he'd be scared, but I could understand. Like, for example, when I got that 402.8, there's that bit in the back of my head that, please, God, don't drop this. Right? <laughs> so if somebody is afraid of effectively borrowing a lens, taking somebody else's gear, utilizing it, and oh, what happens if I damage it? What, what do you say to somebody that's afraid of the process? We get that a lot. Um, not as much as we used to, um, because people have, you know, more familiarity with the industry now, but early on, especially, it seemed really crazy, right? That you could pay someone $150 with no deposit and they would mail you something that costs $2,500 that doesn't belong to you and trust you to send it back. Like there was a lot of what's the catch here, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, but I think part of it for people is they are just overly worried about damage um, or getting nickeled and dimed or what could go wrong. Um, and I think for us, it's always been a big thing to build up trust uh, with our customers to be very human um, so that we deal with those things for them that, you know, they trust us that if they drop the lens and it needs a hundred dollar repair, we're not going to tell them that they need to give us a new lens. We'll tell them, Hey, this is a hundred bucks. And you know what? We can fix it in office for 40 bucks. Um, we're just going to fix it ourselves. And we can you know, too. That's the type of thing we do to try and really give people a belief that they're getting good equipment. That's going to work. Um, and that there's not going to be a lot of hassle involved. I think that's really people just assume maybe that we make our money off, right. <laughs> you know, when things go wrong that, and you know, cause like that's how blockbuster, I'm not sure they made money off renting movies. I think they might've made it on the late fees, you know? Um, so just kind of for us to not have a bunch of tricks up our sleeve, I think is, is what people expect. Um, and that's kind of what they don't see with us. Um, it, and they can, they can, when they check out, check out and, and buy insurance that says, if yeah. you drop it down a mountaintop, send us back to pieces, you're covered. 
Okay. So see, that's a good one. And, and I still go back to, and again, I don't know your industry. So at any point in time when Steve's an idiot here, just correct me. Right. But your industry to me could not survive based on the blockbuster or whatever model of I'm going to rent you one something one time and I'm never going to learn your name and I don't really care who you are and if I never see you again, whatever. Because for the, for this type of industry to survive, I would think the return customer and the referral is going to be a huge part because we're such a, the photography video production community, the creative community is such a tight knit world mm-hmm. that, you know, being treated like a customer that matters, being, being dealt with in a way that, look, we want you to come back, right? If you, if you're a regular enough customer to tell us we need you to carry iPads, that's a good thing, not a bad thing, right? Absolutely. Use cases. We talked about a couple. I, I came up with pre-purchase, like you want to test that you, you, you are willing to spend the ridiculous money in a 402.8, but you want to test it first. Right. You've got a paid job that you can charge back to the client. Another one I think uh, nobody thinks about. If you're charging money for photography, videography, not just your camera, but the comm system, whatever, and you're going on a paid job, you better have backup gear. Mm-hmm. Right. Any other use cases maybe people don't normally think about? I, I think there's the fun part. <laughs> I mean, you want to going to Alaska so, with a 500? Is that where you Alaska. How about how many people do you know that really need like a like a 50 millimeter F095 for 12 grand? Nobody. But how many people would like to use it for a weekend? That might be fun. And I think that's a lot of stuff we get too, or or a vacation. Or or sometimes the big switch. I've been shooting Canon SLRs for 10 years and now I want to try this mirrorless thing out. Oh, good point. Let me get a mirrorless camera and a couple of lenses for a week and see if this is going to fit my style or if I like it or which of those four brands, if I'm changing from from SLR to mirrorless, I don't have to stay Canon now. That's a big thing. Um, But I think there's, there's a brand. Yeah. That's a good point. Brand switch too. Yeah. Brand switch is big. And you can kind of see that in our stuff. If somebody rents a, a rentals two Canon lenses, that's a Canon shooter. But if somebody rents a Sony camera and two Sony lenses, you kind of think there's somebody who's considering making a swap or whatever. So I, I think those come in a lot. So there's the fun. And then a lot of our business, most of our customers are individuals renting a little bit. A lot of our business, though, is big stuff. So that big shoot, I'm going to have three videographers and four cameras and lighting and everything else to do a music video. We've got that. I want to, to know that everything's been checked out. One of the things you mentioned earlier, thinking about buying a lens, we have a lot of customers who rent a lens and then buy it from their rental. They never, they don't send it back. They, they, in fact, I don't think they have to call. They can do it online now, but uh, that's an option. So if I rent a lens, yeah, and you want to keep that copy. Yeah, we have something called the Lens Rentals Keeper where um, it's specific to the copy you have. So, you know, if we sent you out one that we literally took out of a box um, and you ask for a quote on that lens, it's going to be pretty close to the new price because you're the first person's ever touched it. But if it's one we're getting pretty close to selling, it's got some, some you know, cosmetic issues, you're going to get a pretty good quote price on it. Um, and then we apply your rental fees to it. Um, so it's a really good way to take a short-term rental and then, 
decide if you want to buy it. Um, we just saw that as a big, big thing people were doing. And, you know, we have a bunch of gear we have to sell and it really has worked out well on both sides. Um, you really sell this stuff every, t- like you rotate stock every two years or whatever, or so, or is it mainly based on, on usage of that gear? I mean, if you had a 402.8 that over two years only got rented twice, I'm assuming you wouldn't rotate it. Yeah, we would. We probably would. Uh, but also that if we have a lens that only rents two times in two years, it's yeah. probably a discontinued product at that point. Um, oh yeah. Okay. That's a good point. But, right, yeah. but back when I started, my thing was as things started aging, it was, do I make this? judgment call of is this a little too dingy is it banged a little too much can we keep it or not and i knew i'm not impartial i'm going to go well let's get a couple more uses out of it so we just drew a line two years second birthday it's out it gets sold i like that see that and again at the beginning of this i said part of the reason was your blog post okay which i'll i i hope i remember to bring up again later because I, I do need to talk about the blog post a little bit but it's, it's the attitude that, that you guys individually, but as a company appear to have, I haven't met you before today, but sure appear to have. And that is one of the things I learned in business school years ago was, um, you know, the definition of a successful business is making a fair return on your investment, a fair profit on your investment. It's not gouging on those little fees. It's I've got a customer. I'm going to take care of the customer. I'm going to charge a reasonable markup to take care of the customer. And everybody's happy. And it's that kind of we're all in this together attitude that I kind of dig. There are there are misconceptions, I think, about renting gear. People think you know, this, which like Michael brought up earlier, scares them away. People think this, which for whatever reason makes them think maybe the value isn't there for them. What are some of the misconceptions that we can correct right now about just rental? Uh, Expense. That's the number one. Um, You know, how reasonably priced it is. Um, As far as no deposit, stuff like that, you know, people who, especially older photographers who've been in the industry for longer than a decade. I mean, their idea of what it costs to rent something is usually very, very wrong. You know, they hear what's the cost to rent 2470 for Canon and they think, you know, 20% of purchase price, it's, it's under 5%, you know, it's, it's less than a hundred dollars for a week. You know, it's really reasonable. Um, and I think that's really important, but also too, I think people should look at where gear's going. Cause I think people are looking at their equipment as less of an investment than they used to. Um, the replacement cycles from the manufacturers feel like they're getting shorter every year. Um, so I think people used to buy a lens and maybe looked at it more like a car. Like this has an intrinsic value and it will at the end of its life with me. Like this lens, I might pay $2,000 for it, but it's going to be worth 1500 in two years. Um, same thing with a car, right? You don't ever expect your car you bought brand new to right. be worth zero. But these days, some of this stuff, it is worth zero. I mean, like there, there's less replaceable parts. There's more ways for things to just die. <laughs> you know, just, you can't fix this. Uh, you, you spent $2,500 on a lens and you rolled the dice of whether or not it would be worth zero, uh, in two years or not. So I think for some people just owning less equipment as equipment's become more specialized and, and less repairable is definitely a trend, especially on the video side. It's too hard to keep up with. I mean, it's right. just, it's crazy on the video side, how fast things move, um, both from the technology, but also what clients want, I think. And they're, they're video companies, not just videographers, they're video companies and they don't own any equipment. They rent for every shoot or own very, very little. 
just enough to get by the small job and then they supplement based on Everything. on trend or direction uh well, you know photographers we we were angry about the every six month slr upgrades for a while uh, some of which weren't very impressive videographers are worse i mean if you've got a two or three year old video camera you may not be able to use it anymore i mean the standards are different right yeah if you've got a camera right now that doesn't do 4k yeah you you literally probably can't use it on a job even if the job is 1080 because you're going to need to do a punch in shot or you're going to need to do something they expect uh, to downsize and downsample and whatever yeah <laughs> and so i think we're seeing a lot of that sure if you're a sports photographer owning a 400 28 is a good idea um and the photo camera cycles for those high ends seem to be lengthening to at least a couple of years on the video side it's like oh that's we got that last thursday it's out of date so you rent this gear, some of which is what, what's the most expensive piece of gear you rent? Like, let's talk lens. You, you're not renting a 1200, I'm guessing. No, there is probably a video, a video zoom of some kind of city yeah. zoom. Um, some of the okay. video zooms are well over 50. Yeah, we have, we have some probably $50,000 value uh, lenses and some cameras. You know, we have like RE Supremes, you know, uh, we've gotten really into the premium city over the last two years on both the cameras okay. and lenses. So. So, uh, but there seem to be smaller number things. So people rent this stuff. Yep. You get it back. I've got pictures I'll show later of some of the stuff that's been in it. But just from a from the more helicopter point of view, you do do a lot of maintenance on your own gear when you can, right? I'm assuming you send some we stuff to. back to the yeah. manufacturer, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, okay. if, if we can fix the thing in-house in two days, it's a lot better than if it goes off to Germany and gets fixed in three months. We've lost right. four or five months. So it's huge for us to do our repairs. So what have you learned about main about the gear itself by doing your own maintenance? A whole lot of things. <laughs> One is, uh, I think the biggest thing that surprised me, and I, I started this in about 2009, getting into repairs, uh, 2008. And in those days, the, the manufacturers are all very secretive. So you can't go... I want to do repairs on your equipment. Will you sell me the lenses and tools? They won't. Um, but I found some workarounds. I used to buy repair manuals from Russia because it was at that time the only place that they were still not computerized so I could get paper manuals. And they're written in Russian, but the diagrams are the same and the schematics were the same. And uh, we've learned a lot. But one of the things is that uh, when you think you've sent your lens off to factory service and it's the very best there is, well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, there, really? There are a lot. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. There's big factory service that if you send it to factory service and there's an address and you can look it up on Google, and there's a building there and you think it was repaired there. You were silly because they took it and shipped it out to any of a half dozen sub suppliers that do the repairs for them at very low rates and send it back. And then they send it to you. Does that change? Oh, OK, hold on. Hold on, because that that's interesting. So isn't it? Do, yeah, that actually is. And it's not uncommon in the IT world, by the way. So, for example, with Hewlett Packard, their standard warranty isn't generally repaired, you know, in-house a lot of times, right. which is normal. I mean, it's a cost issue and other people can do the their, I mean, it's certified text, quote unquote, right. but it's like they're certified text for your Maserati, too. But you probably want to be at a Maserati dealer. Uh, but I have a Canon service center in yeah. Irvine. I can get there faster. I, I've had it where I drive it down there, hand it to them. 
okay, it's going to be two days because I'm CPS. And so with mm -hmm. the with the Hewlett Packard example, if you pay for their better warranty on your enterprise gear, that's guaranteed to be in-house service. And I believe it's that way with Canon, I always kind of thought, because I've had it yeah. where I drop it off at, at Canon CPS in Irvine, and they'll tell me two days. It's a 40-minute drive home. I'm halfway home and I get a call, your lenses are done. I'm like, what? In the United States, Canon Factory Service is done in the Canon Factory Service Center. I would say they're a gold standard, right? They are the gold standard. Yeah, that's no question. Everyone, I think people assume everywhere is like Canon, where it's all Canon employees in a Canon building repairing Canon lenses with Canon official parts. And then they're Canon trained. And so when they hear, you know, blank service center for whatever brand that is for everything else, they assume it's that same Canon model when it rarely is. I mean, it just, I think if you're not, as large as Canon, it probably is very, very hard to do That's what they fascinating. do. fascinating. That's yeah. a little depressing, though. I got to be honest. It yeah. is depressing, and it's interesting. And, of course, we're taking stuff apart here and, and, it, and there and everywhere. And it depends for us. Can we get parts? If we can get parts, we can probably fix it in-house, with the exception of some things that need a computer program to reprogram. For instance, uh, you can't replace an image stabilizer unit unless you're at the factory with a factory computer. that has to be calibrated. You can't. It may just not work as well. Um, but we see stuff come back and, you know, I can't name names. I've got some non-disclosures here, but I will tell you if the factory service center is located five miles from a border and is 1800 square feet, that's not where the repairs are being done. Right. <laughs> yeah. The square footage gave it away more than anything. Yeah. It really does. And if you, if you look at some of the places where you're sending things, the square footage gives it away. Other companies where you've heard, okay, they laid off 80% of their U S personnel. Do you think they kept all the repair right. decks? <laughs> you know, there's, yeah. there's a lot of that going on. So let, let's let's go this way then. I'm going to rent a piece of gear. Okay. My, my example I gave earlier of the CPS situation was completely my misunderstanding of the seven-day window. I kind of knew I had to ship it, but I didn't think about if I ship it on a Saturday and get it there Tuesday, that's not three days from a FedEx point of view, right? So it cost me, I think it was 320 bucks by the time I was done. It's not a light lens, right? Plus insurance. So in that scenario, how can somebody not be Steve and, and get the most out of their rental period? Appropriate number of days before, you know, what, what's the appropriate number of days before you need the gear that you should get it, leaving enough time to become a familiar with it, uh, having a proper return window to get it back on time. What are, what are the great tips for that? I like to tell anyone, you know, if you're renting it for less than a week, go ahead and pay for a week. Um, because we don't, you know, people, especially people that are familiar with like the, the more brick and mortar model, you know, where you operate on a, it costs $20 a day theory. Um, so three days is 60 and so on. That's not how we work. Uh, seven days does not cost seven times more than one day. Um, you know, a three-day weekend rental and a seven-day rental, there's only about a 20, 30% premium there. Um, so it does make a lot of sense to just give yourself a day or two on both sides. Um, you know, and we take all the, how long does it take to ship out of your hands? Um, you know, you say when you want it to arrive, when you want to ship it back, we take care of the rest. Um, yeah, that's a big difference because you talked about the rental is from them to them. Right. Our rental is due to you. So your rental started when it hit your hands and your rental Oh, it's stopped. not when you ship it? No. So it's if you when I sign for it, it's when you sign for it and when you drop it off. 
You tell us what so yeah, our, our, part, our seven days would be their 10 or 12 days right. because we don't add oh. shipping. Yeah, See, again, but that works, that works for you guys too. Sure. Yes. I mean, that's, that's the thing that people just don't seem to get is that simple biz business decision on your side means the customer that answers Michael's questions earlier. What do you say when somebody's worried? Cause this could be one of the areas they're worried was, is what, what's it going to cost me if I'm too long? That time frame window alone relieves so much customer pressure. You know, well, and think about just recently, we had a huge freeze across half of America. Right. We closed for the first time in 12 years. We, we couldn't ship or send. All those customers didn't have to worry about where's my stuff. Is it, What if it was delayed six days in frozen Dallas and couldn't get anywhere? Not your problem. You sent it back. Uh, and the customers had it in their hands and couldn't get. We sent them out all out. Everybody got an email and said, we understand you're frozen. Send it when it falls. Uh, you know, we, we don't nickel dime that kind of stuff. Um, don't drive on ice to get our thing to FedEx. Just right. when yeah. ice falls, let us know you sent it. <laughs> well, I would say, you know, back to Michael's question earlier, like really the reason why it's not so scary is we have more skin in the game than you do. Yeah, um, you know, if, if you buy a computer from Best Buy and they ship it to you and there's a snowstorm and it takes three weeks to get there and you're calling FedEx every day, well, you own that computer. You owned it as soon as it left FedEx or, you know, uh, Best Buy's right. dock. That's still our lens. Uh, we have every incentive to make sure FedEx delivers it to you. We can't just ship and go, okay, there's a snowstorm. You know, stuff is going to get scattered all over the country for three weeks. Who cares? Because um, we own it. And if you don't need it anymore, well, we have to figure out how to get it back from FedEx now because yeah. they never got it to you. So, you know, the level of care and observation we put on your order is really next level. You know, we had, when we had the snowstorm, like we didn't just email people to say, hey, we can't ship your order. We called 700 different people on one day. Um, and talk to 700 different people about how we could help them with their shoot, you know, and most people are fine because guess what? If we can't ship most of the country, usually can't right. and, and the job people. that they may have rented it for probably may not be happening or right. there's a chance of that. We actually had this interview scheduled for a point when exactly. your office was closed and, and ended up rescheduling. We couldn't run. Yeah, yeah. Which makes sense. And, 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 uh, I'm just glad you guys are safe and got open. Okay. So let's let's go a different route now because you also we talked Canon and we've talked you know Zeiss and Cine lenses. One of the big questions a lot of people have, it's not even so much rental; it's just you're going to have the experience to know it, and that is third-party lenses like Sigma, like Tamron, build quality. You know, there was always a day where people would talk about third-party. You know, Sigma's got some amazing lenses out there, but mm -hmm. that they're QA may not have been as good as the major manufacturer, so it depended which which unit you actually got. I yeah. think that's partially changed, especially with some of the Sigma art lenses. But I am curious, what's your experience with brand quality nowadays across third parties? One of the things I do, you've seen my blog, is we yeah. do something that's really unique. When the new lens comes out, we optically test, and I'm talking about at a higher standard than the manufacturers. We have about a million dollars worth of optical testing equipment. Uh, we test for NASA. We do high-tech stuff. So we take 10 or 12 of those lenses and we test them. We decide what is the range that's acceptable here? How much do they vary? So I've been following this for years. And Sigma today is one of the lower variance brands. They don't vary much at all. Now, what you get online is some guy who said, ah, I've had three of those and they were off one. Yeah, 2002. It's right. Yeah. Today. Okay. Right. So it has, so then it has changed, which makes more oh, sense. What about, 
What about uh, what's your opinion of Tamron quality? Very good and much better than it used to be. Same thing. Some of those business models changed back when I started and when you started. Sigma made, you know, camera stores used to have their own brand. It was usually cheap Quantaray or whatever. Yeah. Sigma made that stuff. That was a Ritz brand. That was a Ritz brand. That's right. Yeah. And I owned a couple. I understand how they were made. But it's, um, that model's gone. They don't have that customer anymore. They're either going to be excellent and compete with the manufacturer's lenses or they're not going to make it. And they do. So most people, I've always mused because we take lenses apart all day. And people say, you know, well, I've got this lens and it's much better than a Tamron. And I say, you know, I took that lens apart and it's got Tamron in it. <laughs> Did you know that? And most of them don't. Tamron is one of the largest manufacturers of lenses in the world. They just don't have Tamron on them. Interesting. So you there. took, I mentioned the blogs. Let me mention that now. And then I've got a question from Terrell I want to get to, but. So I am periodically my buddy, Don Komarechka, a macro genius. He does a podcast called Photo Geek Weekly, and I'm a guest on his podcast often. And periodically when he picks news stories, we'll do like four news stories or whatever for that particular Photo Geek Weekly. And periodically it's one of Roger's posts. And one of them was last summer when Canon came out with the 600 and 800 F11 RF lenses and The way you wrote the blog post. Okay, let me just put it this way, people. I think I even have a link for it in the show notes. And if I don't, I'll I'll remember to do that. Because the way you wrote the blog post of, well, we couldn't get in that way. So we decided to try going in the other side. You know, that type of thing. It It was so wonderful to read the nightmare, you know, the things you would find in there and go, I don't even know what this thing is. Oh, yeah. Like there's a ribbon cable here or there's, there's a screw with a spring and I have no idea what the spring is in there for. I love, I love the way that you do those. So people just go, just go Google, uh, Roger's name and, uh, lensrentals.com and Canon 800 F11. And you'll probably find it, but I think I've got it in the show notes. And again, I'll, I'll try and remember. And we try to name those so we remember them. It's things like the spring of unknown accountability. We, we, we've got a no yeah. clue. It's just here. It's, that the one, it was thing. just when you when you tried, I think you tried going in. Oh, at the, five different ways. We did everything. From the mount, did. and then you went, we can't get in this way. So we decided to try we from the top. about a saw at one point. That was a hard lens to do. I, mean, I just, oh my God, that was so entertaining. I love it. So Terrell Woods, who's a regular viewer of the show, listener of the show, uh, great guy, lives, I think he's in LA actually, but he had a a kind of a multi-part question. And you guys are the perfect ones to ask this to. What do you think about modern bodies, meaning like the high megapixel bodies, right? Mm -hmm. Out resolving older lenses. Because we hear this a lot where the older glass can't resolve the line resolution that a modern sensor can. It, it, okay, so let's start there. Let's is start that true or false? This has started by a company that wanted to put out what I, I think I think of as clickbait. We want to put a megapixel number on the resolution of this lens. And the simple math is that any photography system, the MTF, let's call it resolution, is made up of the MTF of the parts multiplied together. So it is not like I've got a 12 megapixel sensor and a 60 megapixel lens and it does 12. It is you multiply them together. So if my lens is superb, perfect would be one. 
let's say my lens is 0.8 and my camera body is 0.8 because you don't get everything out of the camera. Right. Then the resolution is 0.8 times 0.8 is 0.64. If you raise up one, you raise it both. The only time it can get to where my lens doesn't resolve the camera is if one of them is so horrid that it's 0.1 and the other is 0.9. That, that matters. Okay. But if you've got a decent lens on a camera that's decent and you improve either of them, you improve the system. So if I take... So it's a myth. It, it's not a myth, but it's not right. There's no point where the lens is so awful, unless it's a Coke bottle, that in, increasing the camera resolution does not improve the picture. It does. Now, if you do the same math, though, if you've got a 0.4 lens and a 0.9 camera, a 0.95 camera is not going to help a whole lot. You need to get a better lens. So the system is improved by improving the weakest point. But as you, I just have to point out that as you said, unless it's a Coke bottle, Drew's eyes lit up because yeah. <laughs> somewhere inside there, he went, I have a shot through a Coke bottle. <laughs> and so if that, it, I'm just can. saying, if he disappears later on today, you, you know, there's, you know a, why. there's a guy in Russia who makes his own lenses, grinding Coke bottles, and they're pretty interesting photography. They're really? not. It's not high resolution or anything, but it's cool looking. Okay. But yeah, he literally does. So the second part of Terrell's question was, what about native ISO? And he used a comment that I believe is actually not correct. And that is, and I've seen this everywhere, that Canon native ISO should be a division of, of 160. So 160, 320. My understanding always was that Canon's quote unquote native ISO, although there is the, I think the new C70 they actually market it as being dual, uh, two different native ISOs. But my understanding was always Canon was more towards the 100 and Nikon was towards the 200. Is there any truth to anything of that? I'm going to answer this with something you may never hear on the internet again. I don't know. <laughs> I, I really, I don't have a fund of knowledge to say. Okay. That's, that's, that's an area that there are people who really study that and I know them and they do really high tech testing. and I don't understand it. And I okay. just go, what do they say? I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I'm with you on that one. I to me, it's all, it's all just fun to watch. But does it really yeah. matter? Because my attitude still always goes to, if you're Eddie Van Halen could have made a thirty-five dollar pawn shop guitar sing. If right. you're a if you're a pro photographer and you're given an old Canon XTI to go do a job with, my guess is you could probably get sellable images. Yeah. So there is a certain point at which, like I live. Yeah. At 3,200 and 6,400 ISO. Yeah. None of it matters I, to me to I, an I extent. I think that's the whole thing, too, is I look at these things, not, and people get so angry about, well, an artist can make art. Of course he can. But that equipment may not do everything the artist wants it to do, and that's what the, the better equipment's for, is to let right. you do something you can't otherwise do. Which is but when rental is good. Yeah. Are, are there any trends people should know about for rental right now? Um. You know, I don't know that rental trends are really that different than probably the broader trends. Um, but, you know, I don't know how much that sort of stuff gets shared publicly because obviously, you know, as you're, if you're a retailer, you have a little bit more sensitivity uh, towards brands than we, than we do. Um, so obviously mirrorless uh, continues to be a huge trend and people adopting Sony email. Um, 
those are what you hear about everywhere else. And I can confirm they are very real and they've been going on for several years now. Um, people love it. Um, and I would say uh, probably the last year, the most noticeable thing is just how successful RF has been. Um, we've seen, when I first started here, micro four thirds was the only mirrorless system. That existed. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we've seen every single, everything get launched from the really ridiculous, no good stuff to the legitimate. And I think Canon RF is the only thing other than the Sony e the stuff that I've, I thought has hit like a critical mass uh, pretty fast. Uh, I feel confident that it's the future for Canon uh, with the way it's getting adopted. So such gorgeous lenses. I mean, really, yeah, honestly, yeah, totally. gorgeous glass. I I think I think Canon has done amazing stuff with. I think that the original Canon R uh, was left lacking, considering the time frame it came out with. With the Z had already been out, the Sony's mm -hmm. were already big. I think for their first toe in the water. To me, it would have been better if they had kind of said, okay, we're here now, as opposed to we'll be there in a minute, right? Yeah. But but I think what they've done now is absolutely amazing. This was not one of my questions that I was going to ask, but it just hit me. You know, all the stuff about the the R5 overheating with 8K, yada, yada, yada. I went through that with, with uh, somebody from Canon, actually, on an interview talking about the new bodies when they came out last summer. Because it's always my belief that, yes, there are a lot of hybrid shooters out there. And there's a lot of people out there that, yes, you want to shoot 4K60 without an overheating issue or 4K 120. I get all of that. It's my kind of belief that Canon knows how many of their users are photographers, videographers, or hybrid, or has some data point to that effect that they're confident in. Do you get a sense when people rent your gear of really what is the hybrid? And I don't mean hybrid like me where, okay, I may have an R5 and I may want to shoot 8K, but it's ne I'm never going to hit that overheating. I just won't. What's the percentage of serious hybrid shooters in your experience that would ever really hit that? Not, it's hard and I'm know. not minimizing the problem. The problem yeah. technically exists. I, I'll give that. I think maybe it's less about that and more about what like i don't think hybrid shooters anymore just they want one camera they use for everything um what we see people using for video is dependent on their specific shoot very much different than photo so when we see somebody go down to like an r5 it's not necessarily for cost as much as it is they need a really small rig for what they're doing and gotcha so when you look at it that way i think what canon knows probably is that like for the for the shoots you need this camera for, are you really shooting long? Um, you know, because like if if it's gonna be on a tripod and run a ten minute shoot, well, like just use a like why do you need such a compact camera? Uh, just pay a little bit more, get a get a cinema camera that won't right. overheat, and that's fine. So I think it's more that than it is photo versus video. It's more just the use. Um, in in this case, I think there was a little bit of I want this, therefore they have offended me by not providing it. Right. Yeah, you can't have everything. I mean, like you can't have a camera that small that doesn't overheat. Yeah, and it's sealed. You can't. Physics apply. But I, I, you know, the interesting thing is on the internet, I saw pages, and you did too, of comments and comments and comments. I went and bought an IR camera so I could take heat pics of this thing and see what was going on. In the in the actual rental world, where we're renting hundreds of these, were there any complaints? 
I don't remember any complaints. See, and that was my thing. When I had Drew from Canon on, and it was this type of a thing. It wasn't, you know, so much a commercial for the cameras. It's just, hey, these are out. I happen to know some people at Canon. Let's get them on and talk about the bodies. And I made a comment that was probably a little more flippant than it should have been. And I heard about it in the in the comments because let's be honest, I, I need to respect that some some people out there want this. But it, I was still of kind of the mindset of, I understand you want it, but Canon has every right. This was really what I said. Canon has every right to make the camera that they want. Yeah. And if it's not the, the camera for you, you may be depressed about it, but yeah. these overheating warnings came out in early July. Right. And the camera wasn't released until August 1st or July 31st. So you had plenty of time to go, I'm going to wait. If you I, bought I that camera and took it on a production a job, if somebody yeah. took an R5 on a production job and it bit him in the butt, it's kind of on them. Yeah. They had much more problems with us a couple of years ago. I mean, when I'm going to get email again, I know it. When when, four, <laughs> when people started really shooting 4K on small form factor cameras, you know, in like the first cameras that would overheat, we gave out a lot of refunds, you know, from people who, oh, why can't this shoot as long as I want it to? Um, and I think there's a lot more education now, right? As far as if you're shooting for 8K video with a mirrorless camera, it's going to run hot. Um, you know, and if you don't, if that's a problem for your shoot, get something else. Um, but like, it just, you can't say, I want this form factor at this price with all these features and snap your fingers. Like there's engineering compromises that have to be made for all, right. you know, all that stuff. And that's just, and, and, I, and, like and it, it's not just engineering, it's business, right. right? There is, there are people in meetings that are way above my pay grade that are making these decisions. And I I refuse to believe, although it's been done in big business, I refuse to believe at a company, the, the sizes of the companies we're talking about, that they're making these decisions in a void. They've got data. I want to bring the flip side to it, though, because okay. these are huge companies. So huge companies designing a camera. There's probably 18 committees. There's the right. sensor committee. There's the marketing committee. There's this, that. And these things get bandied back and forth. And somebody on the sensor committee might say, we can give you this 8K with just this little bit over here. And it didn't get back to the lower perhaps heat sink engineering committee in time right. or the firmware committee and everybody got together and it gets close to time to bring this out i'm sure the next camera this problem is going to be addressed it, yeah well but and this, this is the megapixel wars from, right. from the early and 2000s where marketing won oh. over engineering there wasn't a photographer on earth in those days saying that yes. they needed 25 megapixels but you know, like on a phone. Okay. Yeah. But marketing won out. So let me jump into this really quick. I want to show these pictures really quick before we close out, because these blew my mind when I first saw these. So this first one, this is just the, it's like you're shooting against the light table, uh, right. just shining white light into a lens. And that appears to be a fly in that the lens. Yeah. Right. This is not a picture of a fly. The fly is no, in the lens. Fly lens. Yeah, we we had to go get out. Wow. Okay. So then, what? You never seen a fly on a lens before? I have never seen a fly on a lens. Never heard that one was, either. That would actually be more our, fun. That was our fourth. Well, here's another one where you're taking a picture through the element, and again, you've got an insect in the lens. Here's the question: Does it affect the image quality? Not very much. See, now, that's interesting. It, if you stop down. 
you're going to get more of an effect. Where in the lens it's located. But these were fairly deep in the lens. Now, if it had been right at the rear element, you'd, you'd have seen something. But it's up in the part of the lens where the light's all being refracted and bent everywhere. So we got to where I think at F11 we could get shadows of the fly in the lens. The, the customer who sent it back apparently had no complaints of their images, which means they probably shot it fairly wide open. Um, I don't think you've got the spider picture, but those are actually a problem. The fly, we take the lens apart, get the fly out, clean it up. Spider gets in there and spins a web. Ooh. And that stuff means every single element has to be taken out, individually cleaned. It's hard to, spider's still sticky. It's cheaper to burn the lens. It really is. (laughs) Well, speaking of which, this one, uh, I think Philip, when he sent me this, said that this was from uh, somebody shooting the eclipse with the lens. Yeah. And they melted the actual aperture blades. Yeah. And this is a person who, they've aimed the lens at the eclipse. And their shutter's closed, so they're not worried about the sensor. But that telephoto lens is just magnifying all that light down to that closed aperture. (laughs) I think we got five melted apertures back. Which is not bad for what it was, honestly. I I just look at this and I think, how hot did that have to get to melt blades? Bad. Bad. But if you leave a lens that big pointed at the sky for two hours because you have it in perfect position for the eclipse. Right. Think about when you were a kid and had a magnifying glass and you're yeah. trying to light some ants on fire. That's a magnifying glass. Think about yeah. 800 millimeter. Well, you just lens. took me back to my youth. I know, you know? Yeah. 800 millimeter lens is magnifying stuff insane. Oh, I think that was a 600, but uh, we got, we had every single, you know, any lens that could possibly be used as a telephoto left our office uh, for <laughs> the eclipse. And the average experience level for using those lenses was way less than normal. Mm-hmm. And they right. were all using it to point at the sun. Um, so honestly, the few that we got back that were like that was on. We were honestly very proud of our preparation and our warning uh, because, I mean, we had stuff in the boxes. We emailed people seven times. Please, do not point this lens at the sun. Do not point at the sun without a solar filter. Just whatever you do. I mean, every possible. By the way, did we mention, don't point this at the sun? Yeah. We did everything printed on the tape. I mean, it was just everywhere. Yeah. But so yeah. L- let me finish with this then. And this is this. If you don't have an answer to this, that's fine. I ask every guest this question. It's unrelated to what you guys do, but you're into photography, obviously, as well. So. My question to either one of you, both of you, however you want to go about it is, who's a photographer or artist that people, they may know about, they may not know about, but if they don't, they should go look up and follow online. Actually, my answer was not going to be, it's not a living person. It's Leonard Leonard Des Moines. Oh, I agree. I think he did amazing things at a time way before anybody else was doing what he did with body image. And a lot of people don't know he was even a photographer and a very renowned photographer. Um, Yeah, actually, Leonard Nimoy Spock, for those who didn't put the name together, Spock was an avid photographer. He was partially responsible for redoing the Griffith Observatory here in downtown LA and refurbishing all of that. But an amazing photographer did some nude stuff, did a lot of other stuff and was really, really good. That's a really good pick. So go look up him and Drew, did you have one or not? Can I also, uh, he's a former photographer because I just, I'm a very, 
I enjoy history um, and I enjoy journalism quite a bit. I'm not a fine art type person. So for me, just as soon as you said that, what struck me was honestly through all the museums here in Memphis, uh, Ernest Withers, mm-hmm. um, you know, he was uh, a photojournalist and just captured so much of the core of the history in this part of the country and the African-American experience in the middle of the century. Um, you know, okay. we have, we're fortunate enough to have the civil rights museum here, um, our art museum has tons of his work and it's just, it's very moving to me. Um, it's very simple, um, you know, and it just resonates throughout the decades. You see it and it feels like it was yesterday. It doesn't feel like history. It feels very current. Awesome. Okay. So those will be in the show notes and just so people can find you guys, uh, Roger and Drew from lensrentals.com. Uh, I want to give, they've been popping up underneath you as we've been talking, but for those of you listening on the audio only feed uh, for the podcast, the podcast, by the way, just so that everybody knows, you can, wherever your podcast catcher app is, whatever it is, you can subscribe to this as an audio only feed. It's just look for behind the shot, makes it easy. And if your app supports video or if your service does, there's a video feed for it too in your podcast app. We're also on Spotify, we're on Amazon, we're on Pandora, we're on all of that. And of course, the video is also up on YouTube. But for those on the audio feed that didn't see the lower thirds pop up, uh, let's start with the website. What's the website? Lensrentals.com. Makes it easy. Lensrentals.com. And let me just stress that Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook are all the same. Lens Rentals with an S. YouTube, no S. Uh, YouTube, I have it as Lens Rental. Am I correct? Yes. Okay. So lens rentals at lens rentals, pretty much everywhere, except YouTube, it's lens rental. So go check that out. Go look at what they've got to offer. And to both of you guys, I can't say thanks enough because this is, this is exactly what I wanted. I just wanted people to understand that these options exist for them. And, you know, Drew and Roger, great people, great company, respect them, love what they do. Give them some business. If for some reason you want to go to another company, okay, fine, go to another company. The main thing is what I really want you to get out of this as as a viewer listener is start considering, you know, why renting gear may be better for you at certain points than purchase. Because I think if you just get into the rental system, you might find that it has a lot of benefit to you. Anything you guys want to add before we close out? I just want to throw out, and you said it earlier, but. If you're not a U.S. customer, most countries do have a rental house, uh, Canada, England, of course, Australia, Germany, Malaysia, India. There are a lot of rental houses if you go look for them. And most of them are really built on our model these days. Uh, we've helped several get started with advice. And uh, it's a, it's really more of an option than people realize. Yeah, I would just tell people, too, if they have any questions about you know gear, even if they're interested in renting right now, feel free to give us a call. Uh, we have experts who, I mean, they've touched more gear than anyone in this country, probably. We we have people who have done this for 10 years and they would love to talk to you about just what it is you're looking to buy and that and the, they know more about the downsides and the upsides to every piece of equipment and they will talk to you and they won't push you uh, to rent anything. They just um, like talking they, about They just it. love talking to you. So feel free to call us, use us as a resource. It's free. Um, you know, for a lot of folks, we've become the local camera store because there's exactly. plenty more. And well, and again, though, you offer... Really, you give an ability that a lot of local camera stores can't do, right? A lot of local camera stores, they're they're small square footage. Their square footage is tied up with retail inventory. And what they can have behind the counter that they can give to you may not be as well maintained as a company dedicated to 
sending it out to multiple people over time. So you're, you're more likely, in my opinion, if you go with a national rental dedicated type company like LensRentals.com, to me, you're more likely to get a better first experience with a piece of gear that you're honestly considering buying. Exactly. We think so. Yeah. We try to keep it that way. Yeah. Well, okay. That makes sense. Uh, again, to both you guys, Ruin, uh, Ruin Roger, that was good. I like that. Ruin Roger. Where may go that? I can see the cartoons coming up now. Uh, Drew and Roger, thank you so much for doing this. And please do me a favor. I want to mention Philip because he has been wonderful setting this up. So if you would please thank him for me as well. Absolutely. So to everybody else, uh, if you are looking for information on LensRentals.com or whatever company you want to go with, again, not a paid ad, no sponsorship here. These are just some really good guys. I wanted to get them on and kind of hopefully dispel some rumors for you. Let me know in the comments below if you're on YouTube or you know, message me on Twitter or social media or whatever you want to do. Uh, and let me know what you thought about the episode because this is different than the normal show. We'll get back to the normal show, obviously, as we go through. Uh, but if you want information on this particular episode, go to BehindTheShot.tv, click the link for this episode, and I've got a blurb written in there uh, about both of these gentlemen, about the company, about how you can rent stuff, a little bit of everything. The pictures I talked about, if you didn't get to see them with the flies, those are up there as well, so you can always check that out. If you are watching this on YouTube, please do make sure that you go click the subscribe button down below, smash the bell. It makes everything a lot easier. And one more reminder, PrincetonPhotoWorkshop.com. I've got a class on the challenges of low light action photography. It's three consecutive Thursday nights coming up in April of 2021. If you watch this after that, fast forward this part, <laughs> okay? Makes it a little bit easier. To everybody, as always, thanks for watching. I'm Steve Brazel. This is Behind the Shot, and we will see you on the next show. Thank you.